Our text this afternoon is going to be Psalm 25. Psalm 25, you're welcome to turn there in your copy of God's Word. And we remain standing for the reading of God's Word, not because it's old. Heresies are old. We don't remain standing out of reverence for God's Word because it is holy, though it is holy. It is truly holy. But something could be holy or thought of as holy or special or, or uh, a set apart and yet not be infallible and inerrant. So we stand for the word of God because it is true. Every word, every sentence, every phrase, all of the syntax, it is inerrant and it is infallible and it always has been. That's why we stand. Let me read to us. Psalm 25, to you. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard, so you're going to hear Yahweh instead of Lord, but that's what the Hebrew is underneath when you see L-O-R-D capitalized. To you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, let none who hope in you be ashamed. Let those who deal treacherously without cause be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and you I hope all the day. Remember, O Yahweh, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Good and upright is Yahweh. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. May he lead the humble in justice and may he teach the humble his way. All the paths of Yahweh are loving kindness and truth to those who guard his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears Yahweh? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in goodness and his seed will inherit the land. The secret of Yahweh is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward Yahweh for he will bring my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am alone and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. See my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. See my enemies for they are many and they hate me with violent hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness guard me for I hope in you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. (coughs) Father in heaven, we ask now that you would bless and oversee the preaching of your word, despite the fallibility and sinfulness of the preacher, despite the fallibility and sinfulness of the hearers. You are true and you are infallible. You are righteous and pure and holy and good. And we want to know you in all of those traits and in every way that you explain yourself in the word. And as we look at one portion, one chapter, one psalm out of 150, we ask that you would guide our eyes, 
Guide our minds and press upon our hearts. Give us ears that we may hear the truth, that we may change our lives accordingly. May we not be hearers who delude themselves, but faithful doers of your word. We know that this is only happening and possible by your grace. And so we appeal upon your grace and your mercy towards weak individuals like us. We thank you for this time. Use it for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we know that today is New Year's Eve and a new year is upon us. And undoubtedly that new year will be fraught with trials and difficulties. There's likely to be a good bit of confusion, a good bit of strife coming in the new year. Yet, that same new year will be infinitely filled with and entirely governed by the one true God of the Bible. Providentially directing every nanosecond and every micro decision will be the Lord God Almighty. So then, in thinking about what the new year means, and I'm inclined towards thinking about the new year when it happens versus other days and, and holidays because a year is a portion of time that's determined by God. Psalm 19 talks about God ordaining the sun and the movement of the sun. It's rising. He calls it like a bridegroom running into his chambers. And God has ordained that sun and he uses the sun metaphorically. And we get our timeline of a year from the sun. So thinking about that time and the way that God has chosen to mark time, I think is a healthy thing and a good thing. But how should we approach, rather, how should we pray for the new year? What shall we beseech the Lord for in the new year? What should we want from our creator and sustainer? Not what do we want, what should we want from our creator and our sustainer? I think that Psalm chapter 25 gives us four things to want, four biblical things to want from our God. Wisdom, forgiveness, preservation, and faith. Wisdom, provision, or wisdom, forgiveness, preservation, and faith. And in thinking through this psalm, I couldn't help but the imagery coming to me of of that of a pilgrimage, of pilgrims, strangers, exiles, sojourners, travelers, those who are occupying a land that is not their own and that are headed to another land that is their own. And that is what we are. That's what the Bible calls us. A place like 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's what you are, says Peter. You're sojourners and exiles. You're not for here. You're traveling through here. You sojourn and you're in exile. And Hebrews talks about it in that, that faithful chapter where, uh, chapter 11, where all of those individuals in the scriptures are, who have exhibited great faith, uh, even in this, the face of great trial, are listed in the middle of that chapter when he's done talking about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says this in verse 13, saying, all these meaning those men, died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, not just in the land of of Canaan or Egypt, but on the earth. 
For those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. And we are seeking a country of our own. And indeed, if they had been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. So meaning they were seeking a country there of their own, but it wasn't that patch of dirt in the Middle East called Canaan or Palestine or Israel, whatever it's called. They're thinking about something else because they could have just gone back to that place, but this is, they're thinking about a different type of place as pilgrims and sojourners in verse 16. But now they aspire to a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he prepared a city for them. This is where John Bunyan and his Pilgrim's Progress idea gets the idea, book, Pilgrim's Progress book, gets the idea of calling heaven the celestial city that you're going from the city of destruction. This place will be destroyed through this pilgrim path to the celestial city. That's where he gets this idea because God has prepared a city. So if that's who we are, strangers and exiles and travelers, how shall we endure in this new year? What do we want? What, do we want to persevere to the end of this pilgrimage? Of course, the answer for that is yes. But this new year is gonna be a part of it. For some of us, it's the, it may be the end of that pilgrimage. For some of us, it may just be another leg in that pilgrimage. Either way, what do we need from God to press on towards that goal? What do we need to endure? We need wisdom to remain in the path of Yahweh. We need forgiveness for our many, many wanderings off of that path before and after salvation. We need preservation through the difficulties that exist on that path. And we need faith in the Lord of that path that he can and will bring us to the destination, to the end of that path. So I think that Psalm 25 lays those things out for us in those four prayer requests, the pleas of a pilgrim's heart, the first being wisdom. Now this text, first, or Psalm 25, doesn't say the word wisdom, but that's what's being asked for. There's about nine references to it in this, in this chapter. Six are direct prayer requests, chapter, or verses four, five, eight, nine, and 12 and 14. So let's look at verse four first. What he asks for is God, give me your undiluted wisdom. Make me know your paths, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. See, if we would travel well as pilgrims, we would cease insisting on inserting our own wisdom. Because what he's asking for here, the psalmist David is asking, he's like, make me know your ways. Teach me your paths. He's not saying, hey, let's collaborate and you get a little bit of what you got and I'll give you a little bit of what I got. And, and he's done being a toddler. What well, did toddlers eventually get to the point where saying, no, I could do it myself every time, right? And you're like, no, you can't. Those aren't even shoes you're trying to put on your feet, but we're trying to go out the door. You're trying to put Legos on your feet. You can't do it by yourself. And that's a bit what we're like when we say, God, I need assistance. Boost me over the edge. No, what does David say? He says, make me know. 
He doesn't say, help me get along the way. He, he just says, make me know it. I mean, this gets away. This is contrary to the, well, God is a gentleman and he's not gonna force himself onto you. David says, I don't want any of that nonsense. Make me know it. Or the, the idea of, of, well, we aren't robots. David says, I wish I was a robot. Make me know it. David isn't so desperately clinging to his own identity and will. He says, I'm sick of it. Make me know your ways. That's all I want. Teach me your paths. That's all I want. Give me that and nothing else. Take over and do it. There's no place for pride on the pilgrim path. There's certainly no place for pride when you're asking God for wisdom. Self-assertion is gone. Whatever you'll do or think on your own is impotent. It has no power. It has no authority. It offers nothing. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us exactly that. Trust in the Lord. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. With all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You won't make your path straight. He will. And when will he do that? when you don't lean on yourself at all and only upon his wisdom. See, only the humble desire this and only the humble receive this. So you can't and you won't ask for or ever possess God's undiluted wisdom if you still believe that you yourself have some wisdom that you possess and you wanna mix it in with whatever God's got. You'll never have it. You won't ever ask for it, so you won't ever have it. But if you did ask for it, you won't ever get it because that's what James 1, 5 through 8 calls a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Yes, God, I want some of your wisdom, but I also have some pretty good ideas on my own to bring to the table. Let's kind of work it together, get some synergy going here. No, no, you ask for God's wisdom and you wait for him to give it to you because you have nothing, nothing to offer whatsoever. Verse nine in Psalm 25 says, may he lead the humble in justice and may he teach the humble his way. Those are the only people that get taught it. Those are the only people that get placed on that path are the humble. See, the proud, they get God's opposition. The humble, they get his grace. James 4, 6 but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What would it be for God to oppose you? What, what would it be for the creator of the universe who speaks to matter that doesn't exist, then it comes into existence and takes the shape of everything that he says it to take? What would it be to be opposed by that being? That's what the Bible says is happening to the proud. But what does he give to the humble? He just gives grace, even a greater grace to the humble. So if a pilgrim, if we as pilgrims will have God's wisdom to travel this life, then you will know, you must know that it only begins with humility and it only comes to us by grace. For we know that all of our righteous deeds, as the prophet Isaiah says, are just filthy rags. You bring nothing to the table. You need everything that God has. He needs nothing that you have. But there is a necessary prerequisite. If you're ever going to get this wisdom, humility 
is part of that necessary prerequisite, but it's spelled out most clearly in the fear of God in verse 12. Who is the man who fears Yahweh? He, meaning Yahweh, will instruct him, that man, in the way he should choose. And then in verse 14, the secret of Yahweh is for a select few. Who is it for? It's for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. Did you see the connection to that? The previous request in verse four was, make me know. And then it goes on to say, this is how you are made to know if you fear God. See, that is the beginning of wisdom. Doesn't Proverbs say that? Proverbs 1, 7, 2, 5, 9, 10, 15, 33. The beginning of wisdom, let alone the end of wisdom or the bulk of wisdom, starting point, square one is fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's where it all starts. Proverbs 15, 33 says, the fear of Yahweh is the discipline leading to wisdom. And before glory comes humility. It, it's a discipline. That's Proverbs 15, 33 is so useful. The fear of God is a discipline. It's something you strive to do, that you yearn to do, that you, you buffet your body to make yourself do because you would rather fear anything else but God. And without fearing him, you will have no wisdom. It's a guarantee. If you don't fear God, you get no wisdom. See, the fear of man is the other option. And that leads to fear in the new year every year. Just think about, we know what's coming next year. Next year is an election year. Nobody's excited about it. Nobody wants it to happen. Nevertheless, it's gonna happen to us. Now, here's your choice. You fear man in this coming year, and then you will fear everything else there is to fear all year long. You fear God in this coming year, then you will have nothing to fear at all, whatsoever, all year long. And the end of that verse in Proverbs 15, says, glory comes before humility. Glory comes before Humility is not glory as the New Testament, other places in the scriptures describe that heaven, that to go into glory. When we say that somebody's passed away, that saint has passed on to glory. If glory is the destination, then what comes first? Humility comes first. You won't get to that destination of glory without humility, without the fear of God. The gospel demands, the gospel demands that you humble yourself and you fear the Lord, you take up your cross and follow Christ. Jesus said, as plain as day, Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me can not be my disciple. You hear that and you think, cool, I got a cross necklace. That's probably what he's talking about. That's definitely not what he's talking about. What is a cross in the first century world? It's an execution tool. So that would be like dragging an electric chair down Main Street or, or uh, whatever they use in, in the uh, hypodermic needles today, lethal injection. Anybody gonna put that on a necklace around your neck? But that's what Jesus says. If you're unwilling to do that, if you're unwilling to be absolutely humiliated by the culture for doing this, why would you lash yourself to an instrument of execution? Why would you go on a death march? You're a fool, says the world. But Jesus says, unless you're willing to do that, then you don't have any part with me. 
because that's, that's the path I walk on. That's the path that he cut and blazed for us. The gospel insists upon your humiliation. That's what the fear of God is. You confess everything that I've ever done and that I've ever believed is wrong. That's what it takes to come into the kingdom of God. You don't just stroll in with, go, oh yeah, this is kind of just fits with my worldview. No, it doesn't. Everything you believed before Christ, every way that you were living before Christ, everything that you took on before Christ, the ways that you thought, the ways that you constructed things was all wrong. It was all a lie. You have to admit that. You have to also confess that before that, I hated God. I hated God and I believed myself to be sovereign. I was my own God. And now I have to beg that God that I hated for mercy. That's what a conquered king has to do. Don't kill me. Spare my life, begging and pleading. So no proud person can be saved, let alone make it through to the end of the path. Doesn't Jesus say that, Mark 10? talking to the rich young ruler or about the rich young ruler after he leaves, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it hard for them? Because they won't humble themselves. I have enough. I am enough. That's why it's infinitely more fruitful to be a chaplain in a prison versus a chaplain for an NFL team. They know I got nothing. I've been destroyed and humiliated by my own sin, by my own criminal behavior, whereas the millionaires think I am God's gift to the world. It is hard for a proud person, Jesus says, to enter the kingdom of God. All those, however, all those who do fear Yahweh, who are willing to humble themselves, he makes them know his covenant of grace. Did you see that in verse 14? I will make them know his covenant. Now that covenant is not just, here's this cool promise that I wrote, like a declaration of independence kind of thing, so you can know I'm legit. No, that covenant is you're brought into that agreement with me. And what is that covenant going all the way back to the beginning? I will be your God, you will be my people. That Abraham, Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God's covenant promise and God said, I'm gonna count that as if you were as righteous as me. And then that gets fulfilled in Christ, attaining all of that righteousness and then that gets put on us in imputation, our sin imputed to him. So when verse 14 says, I will make them know his covenant, he will make them know his covenant. He's not just saying, look, you can trust me. I make promises and I'm good with them. No, I've brought you in to that covenant of grace. You are now the redeemed. That person that fears him is the one who says, verse five in Psalm 25, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. You, you alone are the God of my salvation and you, I hope, all the day. So he longs to be led and taught by the hope of his salvation. Secondly, it's forgiveness. To the, this is the pilgrim's perpetual plea because we are always and increasingly aware of our sin. Pilgrims know their weakness and their wickedness and they're confronted with that regularly. The book Pilgrim's Progress, both books, the one with Christian and one with his wife, Christiana, they keep having these moments where they go off the path. 
For some reason or another, they get convinced by some other character or by the difficulty of the path and that way looks easier and they go off. And every time when they realize what they've done, they have this painful recognition of, I have wandered away from the paths of God and I can't even find my way back. But by grace, they are brought back. See, we need to be confronted with our sin all the time and we plead upon God's covenantal mercy, not our works. Look at verses six and 10. Remember, O Yahweh, your compassion and your loving kindnesses for they have been from of old. You've always been like this, God. In verse 10, all the paths of Yahweh are loving kindness and truth to those who guard his covenant and his testimonies. That word loving kindness That's chesed in the Hebrew. Uh, It's this covenantal, merciful love. That's what a pilgrim appeals to, your covenantal love for me because I am a massive sinner. Please, Lord God, don't give me justice. Just give me mercy. Isn't that what Jesus said in the parable of the the publican or the, uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18? They go in, Pharisees up front praying, look at me, I'm not awful like that guy. And the other guy, the tax collector, the publicans in the corner, beating his chest and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And then Jesus says, that man walked away justified. That man went home justified with God. So we know that this forgiveness of sins that the psalmist is begging for is fulfilled ultimately in Christ. So how is it that we can receive mercy from God. Why wouldn't he just give us justice? It's because John 1 29 is true that when the John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. He's the one that's going to take it all away for all of his people. And then Jesus fulfills that to the end, Luke 22, 20. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten. This is the night before he's crucified. They're around the table. And he says, this cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the payment. Tomorrow is payday. Tomorrow is the day when I pay for it so that you can receive fully and incontrovertibly, irreversibly, the mercy of God, the hesed love of God. By grace alone do we enter the pathway to the celestial city and by grace alone are we carried all the way there because even in wrongful afflictions, our sin abounds. Look at verse 18. See my affliction and my trouble, meaning David says, God, look, look at how awful other people are being to me. And then what does he say? Forgive all my sins, not crush them. And now there's a place for praying for justice. We'll get to that. But even in the midst of, of him being wrongfully afflicted, he prays for his own sins to be forgiven. We can't even endure wrongful persecution without sinning. So we pray constantly for forgiveness and we should in the new year. And we understand why God has a motivation for forgiving our sins. What does verse seven and 11 say? Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Right there, please forgive me. According to your loving kindness, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. And then look at verse 11. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my iniquity for it is great. What what, what could make God, the sovereign creator of the universe that has had his creation that bears his image rebel against him, what could make that God be gracious? What could make that God be forgiving? 
the glory of his name. What would motivate him to pardon cosmic traitors? The glory of his name, so that we would all know and everyone would know that he is God and we are not, that he is gracious and merciful. Why does God do anything that he does? He does it for his glory. And so we are wise and we are biblically informed when we pray along those lines. Do it for your namesake, O oh God. Isn't that what God did? Wasn't that the whole point of the plagues in the book of Exodus? You ever thought about that? If you knew you could do the 10th plague, why didn't you start with that one? What was the point of the gnats and the flies and the water and the blood and the frogs and the boils and the hail? What was the point of all of that and elongating it out and having Pharaoh yo-yo several times saying, okay, I'll let you go and never mind, I'm not gonna let you go. What was the point? God said what the point was. Exodus 9, 13, Yahweh said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh so you shall say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. But this time I will send all my plagues against your heart and amongst your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had sent forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been wiped out from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name throughout all the earth. Why did he do it? For the glory of his name. He does everything for the glory of his name. Why? What's the point in humiliating Pharaoh and redeeming Israel? It's for the glory of his name. Why, why does he shatter the teeth of the wicked and bind up the wounds of the humble because of the glory of his name? That's why he does these things. And as pilgrims, we can never forget this because the path is difficult. And in partly, it's difficult because of our own sin. Partly it's difficult because of a sinful world. That's the third prayer request we see in Psalm 25 is for preservation. See, we know that pilgrims, we are a lowly people. We have so little to call our own here. And we're starting to be more and more aware of that in the United States in this year and in the coming year. There's so few things now that we can participate in. There's so few things now that we can jump in and say, we're a part of, these are our things. So many of those things are just being clearly, obviously claimed and taken that we can't participate in that. We can't be near any of that. You know, in Pilgrim's Progress, they come to the city called Vanity Fair. Ironically, there's a magazine named that and it's, they could have sold it in the 1600s and it would have been the same thing. But when Christian and faithful come into the city, they're told, or the narrator says that the, the pilgrim path goes through the city. There's no way around it. You have to go through it. So they go through it. And while they're walking there, they're approached by all these hucksters selling their tchotchkes and all these things. And obviously they're all sinful things. And it's painfully obvious real quick, as soon as they're in the city, that they are sticking out. The first thing that sticks out is they don't, they're wearing the wrong clothes. You look different because of what you're wearing. And we can all tell that by just looking at you. Secondly, they stick out because of how they talk. They, you just speak differently than us. And, and, and we can all tell if we just engage you in a conversation. And then thirdly, they stick out because of how they behave and things they won't do because they keep being 
confronted with. They buy this stuff, buy this stuff, and they're not buying anything. They're not, they're not yelling and screaming. They're not doing anything and they're not causing a fight. They're getting approached and they're just not buying any of those wares. And so then they ask them, well, then what will you buy? And then Bunyan has them quote from the scriptures, we buy the truth. And the thing is about Vanity Fair, that's the one thing they don't sell is the truth. And because when they say we buy the truth, that makes them stick out to the very end. And this one guy, so eventually faithful Christian's companion, he gets yanked out, put on trial, and they get these, it's a kangaroo court. And then one guy who's accusing him as a witness, his name is Mr. Envy. And he says this, he says about faithful and Christian, he says, and in particular, I heard him, Mr. Faithful, once myself affirmed that Christianity and the customs of our town of vanity were diametrically opposite and could not be reconciled. By which saying, my Lord, now he's talking to the judge when he says, my Lord, he does at once not only condemn our laudable doings, but us in the doing of them. So he gets it right saying, these pilgrims coming through, they're not only condemning what we do, they're condemning us for doing them. And Christian and faithful hadn't said anything. It's just not being apart. That's why Psalm 44, 22 says, but for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Eventually faithful in the book is killed before they leave the city. Paul quotes this in Romans 8, we are killed all day long. So then what do we do as those who need preservation? We're not gonna make it to the end unless the Lord preserves us. Psalm 25, two and three, oh my God, in you I trust Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, let none who hope in you be ashamed. Let those who deal treacherously without cause be ashamed. We plead for mercy. We plead for preservation, knowing that God will deal with the wicked. And you need to hear that on the last day of 23, because 24 is gonna come. And there's going to be a whole lot of power grabbing and a whole lot of wickedness. God will deal with them. The Lord will handle the wicked. We're told to leave room for the wrath of God. In a place like Romans 12, 19, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And you need to know that you're behaving like a worldling if you demand that God deal with the wicked when you say they need to be dealt with. That's all this clamoring and yelling and screaming for justice by the lost is because they know that there is no actual justice and that it won't happen unless they try to wrangle it about. But we don't. We know there will be justice and that should be enough for us. We don't scream and cry and bemoan and wail and fixate. You may just need to blow your TV up so that you don't watch cable news because it's just gonna make you struggle with the vengeance is the Lord's and he will repay. Because that's what we're told to do. We walk this life witnessing injustice, witnessing evil, knowing the Lord of the earth, he will meet out one day perfect justice. You don't have to worry about that. So we just keep walking and we don't stop. And then we understand, lastly, in preservation, the pilgrim's plight. 
Acts 14, 22, reading this verse, just plucked out of context, it makes it bold. So this is the apostles there strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue the faith. Okay, hear me, give it to me, Paul. What do you got for strengthening me and encouraging me in the faith? He says, through many afflictions, we must enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> so you're just telling me that what this is normal, that's the encouragement, but that's what it was. Saying, you need to know that this is to be expected. This strengthened them. And the psalmist concurs with this plight, that this is the truth of us. That's what 15 through 20 say. My eyes are continually toward Yahweh. He will bring my feet out of the net. Like he's a bird caught in a net is the imagery there. Turn to me and be gracious to me for why? I'm alone and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. See my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. See my enemies for they are many and they hate me with violent hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed for I take refuge in you. We would be wise to take those six actions and make them habits as we walk this pilgrim path. Verse 15, what does he believe? He believes that Yahweh saves. Verse 16, what does the pilgrim do? He casts himself upon grace. All I could do is throw myself upon the grace of God. Verse 17, what does he do? He calls upon God's sovereign strength. You have all the strength. You have all the power. You have all the authority. Verse 18, what does he do? He admits his own sinfulness in the midst of it. And we need to, otherwise we become self-righteous. And that's gonna be a big temptation this coming new year is to be self-righteous. Look how horrible they are and look how good I am. So he says, forgive all my sins in verse 18. What does he do in verse 19? He acknowledges the battle. One thing that we need to do is say that there is a war, that there are two sides. All of this boils down to good and evil, heaven and hell. There's nothing else. Neutrality is a myth. There is heaven and hell. That's what this is about. The glory of God and, and the, the, the demons of darkness seeking to gain glory for themselves. And then what, is, what should a pilgrim do in verse 20? Entrust our souls to God alone. Keep my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed for I take refuge in you. And then the last prayer request that we should have, Psalm 25, is faith. Every year should begin and end in faith. This psalm begins and ends in faith. Verse two, oh my God, in you I trust faith. Verse 21, let integrity and uprightness guard me for I hope in you. That's faith, I, I'm hoping. And whom do we hope and whom do we trust? In Yahweh alone. Now this hoping, this trusting, this faith is not blind uninformed, well-thinking. We are not in the power of positive thinking. That is a heresy perpetuated by the church, thanks to Norman Vincent Peale. This is not wishful thinking or empty-headed optimism. This might come around. Hoping and trusting in Yahweh in this life is like hoping and trusting that when you throw a pork chop into a cage with a starving lion that he'll eat it. It, hoping and trusting in Yahweh in this life is like hoping when, and trusting that when you jump into the pool, the water's gonna be wet. 
Hoping and trusting in Yahweh in this life is like hoping and trusting that a buffalo will win a one versus one battle against a gnat. We sojourn this trail with full confidence that the Lord of the land will see us all the way through. The gospel brings us all the way home. But because he has turned, not because we desire him to do it, He's gonna bring us all the way home and preserve us all the way there in faith because he's determined it will be so. John 6, 37, this is Jesus speaking to a massive crowd that would eventually abandon him. He says this in verse 37, all that the father gives to me will come to me. How many will come? All of them, they will come. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Will he ever cast you out? No, Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, this is the will of him who sent me, says Jesus, that all that he has given to me, I lose nothing. How much of what God the Father gives to the Son does he lose? Nothing. And raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. That's a big deal. What is God's will? Jesus saying right here, this is God's will that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. How many who see the son and believe in him will have eternal life? Every single one. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. But what about if I don't make it to the end of the, of the last day? No, no, no. I myself, Jesus says, will raise them up. So we have faith. And really, what you can look at verse five and you can see the whole Psalm in one verse. He says, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation and you I hope all the day. See, the first prayer is for wisdom. He says, lead me and teach me, give me that wisdom. The second prayer request for forgiveness. He says, you're the God of my salvation. Saved from what? From your own sin, from hell. The third prayer request for perseverance. And you, I hope all the day. I need that. I need your hope all day long. And then faith. And who is he hoping in? He's hoping in Yahweh alone. So that's Psalm 5. Psalm 25, 5 really kind of sums up the whole psalm. So here as we conclude, give you one more Pilgrim's Progress sermon. When you get a free sermon chance, you do what you love, and I love Pilgrim's Progress. That's what you get today. <laughs> but at the end of book two, when it's a big group going all the way through the journey, they come across this guy right at the end, and his name is Mr. Valiant for Truth. And he's getting interviewed by the pastor figure whose name is Mr. Greatheart, and he's asking him all these questions about how did you get into the Pilgrim Path, and how did you get here? They're getting towards the end, and people are starting to go across the river, whatever being death, kind of one by one, and they're talking to Mr. Valiant for truth, and he's giving them and explaining all the things that it attempted to discourage him from going on the path. They, they ask him, was there anything that, that tried to keep you from it? That, that you were like, I don't know, because that guy's making a good point or this is kind of scary or intimidating. And he gets through all of those things. And ultimately what it comes down to, he says it was faith that kept him on the pilgrim path. It wasn't anything else. It wasn't, it wasn't white knuckled determined discipline. It was faith, a gift of God that he gives to all his elect to place into him. 
It was faith. And then he says this, and this is a, uh, a poetic summation that comes towards the end there. And Bunyan is not known for his poetry. He's actually pretty bad at it, but this one is good. I'm gonna read this to you. He says, who would true valor see? Let him come hither. One here will constant be, come wind, come weather. There's no discouragement shall make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories, but do themselves confound his strength, the more is. No lion can him fright, he'll with a giant fight, but he will have a right to be a pilgrim. Hobgoblin nor foul fiend can daunt his spirit. He knows he at the end shall life inherit. Then fancies fly away. He'll not fear what men say. He'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim. See, our heart cry as pilgrims, sojourners, exiles on this earth is just that. Throughout this year, come joys or blessings, come toils or snares, our heart cry needs to be with the psalmist in verse 1 and verse 22. Verse 1 says, to you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. To you, I lift up my soul, the entirety of who I am. Believing, verse 22, that he will redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles, God's people, us. He will redeem us. So to where do we lift our souls this year? To whom do we look for redemption? Yahweh, the almighty God, the creator and sustainer of all, the one who was and who is and who is to come, the God of the living, not of the dead, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who we lift up our soul to, that's who we trust for redemption. Lord God, we look at a psalm like this and we know that we've barely scratched the surface. We've looked at these 22 verses and spent a lot of time, but there's more there. Proves to us the infinite wealth that your word is. And Lord God, we need to echo all of these prayer requests that David laid out here. Lord, we need to be made to know your ways. We want to be taught your path. We want to be led in your truth. You are the God of our salvation. No one else is. And we hope in you only. We know that we are sinners. And we plead with you to not remember our sins, to pardon our iniquities knowing that you are good and upright. That's why you instruct sinners in your way and that you forgive and shower your loving kindness on sinners for the sake of your goodness, for the sake of your name. We thank you that you, the secret of life, the secret of eternal life that you hold is for every single person who fears you, who fears you, humbles themselves before you, looks to your way to salvation because you've explained that there's only one. 
and that you will do with that person, you will make them know your covenant. That covenant that is so gracious, that is so one-sided, you moving towards us and loving us. Lord God, we need that. We need that, that knowledge reminded in us, those of us who are converted, who have repented of sin and trusted in Christ. Because we know that, that trial is inevitable, that afflictions are inevitable, that persecutions are inevitable, that hatred from the world is inevitable. Help us to endure that, not be shocked by it, and not, not curry it, not, not bring it about by, by foolishness and arrogance, but knowing that it will come. And when it does come, we have our brothers and sisters because we never walk this path alone. More than that, we have your word to instruct us and to make clear the realities that our lives are in. And more than that, we have your spirit dwelling within us. More than that, we have your son interceding for us. More than that, we have a heavenly father who has made a decree before the foundation of the world to bring home his children. Give us faith in that as we walk these paths these days and take us into the new year, Lord, knowing that some of us, that's the end of the line and are brought home to glory. For some of us, it's another leg in the journey. May we do so together. May we do so in humility. May we do so with steel in our spines, knowing who our master is, that he is Lord, he is sustainer, creator, that he is alone, eternal, immortal, immortal, and invincible. Lord God, we thank you so much for this time, for the chance to gather in worship. We ask that you would guide us this week, bring us back together again next Lord's Day, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.